Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we're talking with pastor and author Russ Ramsey about pastoring like Jesus. Russ is one of the pastors at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and he's the author of numerous books, including Behold the Lamb of God and Struck, One Christian's Reflections on Encountering Death as well as content director for He Reads Truth and She Reads Truth. Russ, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jared. It's fun to be here. Yeah. Um, tell us first a little bit about yourself and, and your ministry. For instance, I'd, I'd be curious to know how you got started writing as um, someone who appreciates real writers, <laughs> not, to, not to exclude anybody who, uh, who likes to write, but sure. um, from... Uh, someone who appreciates real writers to a real writer. Um, I'd be curious about about that aspect of your ministry as well. Yeah, well, I I, um, I became a Christian when I was in high school around, around the age of 15. And one of the things I started doing as a part of my, uh, you know, just my personal walk with the Lord was I started keeping a prayer journal. And there was always something. I'd never done that before, but there was just always something fascinating about seeing a book fill up with words that I'd written. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, and then as the stack got taller and taller over the, over the years, um, you know, I just, every time I would see that, that uh, those, those spines of those journals on the shelf, I would just feel this kind of swell of, of pride and accomplishment um, <laughs> for doing that. And, uh, you know, I, in the process of doing that, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, writing down my, my first and earliest prayers to God I was getting to know and, and using um, that in tandem with reading scripture and trying to echo back uh, some of what I would read in the in, in scripture and the Psalms and things like that. And uh, so that, that habit of doing that um, cultivated, but also made me aware of, I think, uh, a uh, just a... Um, a proclivity for sitting with words and working with words and, and, and that not being something that ever, you know, made me tired or bored, you know, I was yeah. always just fascinated by how words work. And so, so I did that for the longest time. And then, um, uh, when I became a pastor, uh, oh, and during that, I'd also been a songwriter and a musician. So okay. I've, I've done a lot of songwriting and performing and, and, uh, um, and that was a creative outlet for, working with words and really focusing on the turn of the phrase and the way words work together and stack up. And, and then when I became a pastor, you know, the songwriting thing kind of went into the uh, closet for a while and, and uh, sermon writing took its place. And what I discovered was that sermon writing for me um, scratched the same creative itch uh, <laughs> that I would approach sermons like songs, really, I would think of them in terms of verse and chorus and yeah. and crescendo and, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, repeated lines and imagery and things like that. And, um, <clears throat> so, so between that the sermon writing and the songwriting, that was, the, you know, I just had found myself in a place where I was writing all the time, you know, basically writing an eight page paper a week, you know, as a pastor. And, and, um, uh, then, as soon after the, soon after I'd been a pastor for a while in Kansas City in the Overland Park area, um, I became friends with a musician named Andrew Peterson, who and Andrew was starting a blog called The Rabbit Room, which is um, 
uh, an amazing uh, website for faith and theology and the arts. And he asked me to be one of the contributing writers. And that was really my first experience of writing to a general audience that I didn't know. Um, which is a lot of writing for publication and writing for books is you're, you're, you're writing, but you know, I'm not then going to take the words and deliver them in a sermon or I'm not going to perform them on a stage. I'm just going to write them and put them out there. And then people on their own time are going to read them, not read them, interact with them. I don't know, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, writing to that blog um, really gave me a, a, my first taste of uh, writing in the kind of voice that I would use then later for books, um, where I'm just, I'm writing to, you know, dear reader. Uh, and, um, yeah, so, but, I, but I, I think I found that at every stage of writing and every medium that I was using to write, I just came alive when I would do it. I felt I felt just in love with the process and and always wanting to just hone the craft and fascinated by other people's writings and, and you know perk up when I hear a turn of a phrase that I just think oh that was really good you know yeah um, so I think that's for me that's that's how I got into it is there's always just been this love words and I'm a personality that that is fine um, being submerged in detail uh, and kind of camping out on um, a paragraph or a sentence for 20 minutes and, and not feeling like I wasted any time, you know? So, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so that's, that's a lot of it really. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm really, um, curious and, um, it, it resonates with me, the, the overlap or the, the connection between songwriting and sermon writing, because there's something mm-hmm. that I think, I mean, there's people who appreciate good writing or who like to read good books or what have you. But then there's those who who seem to have an ear for when prose has kind of a lyrical quality to it, yeah. Um, which I think distinguishes a writer from someone who can write, <laughs> mm-hmm. if that makes if that makes sense. So yeah, it was, yeah, it does. I think I think scripture has a lyrical quality to it. I yeah. think I think you know because the um, you know the, the Bible is written in thrift. You know, it was written before you could go to Kinko's and buy rings of paper. You know, <laughs> right. Paper was a pretty precious commodity. And so so when you're reading the words of an ancient text, they're carefully chosen intentional words, which, which you know, part of the way then you carry the freight of the meaning of what you're trying to say is by being a miracle in the way you use the key words that you use. And uh, so I've, uh, I've noticed that in Scripture from the time I started reading, that there would just be statements here and there that would carry so much emotional weight um, that you dare not skip over them. But we might because it's just a turn of a phrase, you yeah. know, but, but it's there on the page and it's intended to, I think of um, an example of this is when um, Sarah, Abraham's wife, uh, wants Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Yeah. Uh, so Sarah's been barren. She's been unable to have this child of the covenant promise. Her idea to Abraham was, why don't you take my eight servant Hagar and see if we can have a son that way, which Abraham uh, said yes to. Uh, and, you know, which I don't care how old the marriage is or what time in antiquity you live, uh, that is a strain on a marriage, you know. <laughs> and, um, and Abraham says yes, and, uh, and Hagar has Ishmael, and Sarah does what human beings do, and she, she hates him. Uh, she hates 
Sunsweet. She hates Toy um, because they represent everything she can't do that she wants to do. And so she sends them away. And there's this ton of a phrase where, you know, Hagar sets Ishmael down. And it says that she went and sat a bow shot away. Mm. And that term, a bow shot away, yeah. there's a lot of different ways to say that. But that, it, that phrase is just so filled with, with, that's tragic. You know, there's a tragic thing being said there. Um, and it's that kind of stuff. I, just, I, I love that. And I, I want, you know, even when I'm preaching, um, I want that kind of thing to be incorporated into the sermon where it makes sense. I, I have a real uh, aversion to anything that feels clever. Yeah. You know, if I, if I feel like, uh, and I think Christians are really, really kind of cornering the market in a lot of ways on, on the clever voice. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I just, I think it's, um, I think we can do better uh, than, than, you know, you know than, than, I don't know, I'm going to say something I don't want to say. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think um, so I try not to be clever but at the same time, I try to point out things that are, yeah. that are there in the text that, that were intended for us to say, uh, that's, that's, got some, that's got some weight to it. Yeah, that's good. Man, I, I could talk about this stuff all day, but I want to talk about, <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about pastoring like Jesus. Um, I, you know, it just occurs to me, this is something that I've been thinking about for a little while now, trying to find ways to express this and just, ta- you know, to tap into um, you know, Christ's pastoral heart. I think we tend to think of Jesus, you know, of course, as prophet and king and all sorts of things, but it's rare, even for pastors, I think, to consider him, um, which is odd because he is the good shepherd, um, but to think of him as a shepherd of people, at least in the sense of having a lot of bearing on pastoral ministry. So, you know, first thing I guess I would ask you is, is it okay to think of Jesus as a pastor? Um, I mean, I know, you know, he wasn't, he didn't, he didn't set up shop yeah. anywhere, I guess is sort of what I'm getting at there. Is he, well, an, is he yeah, an appropriate yeah. model? Yeah, you know, I think about this and I think, okay, um, I've wrestled with this question because I think, you know, when I first thought, when I first heard this question, is it okay to think of Jesus? The pastor, my gut reaction was no. Okay. Um, but well, there I goes the podcast. We'll just shut it down right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've since come around to think, well, that's wrong. Of course, we have to think of Jesus the pastor. But here's the tension. The tension is when I think of a pastor, I think of a person who is um, commissioned to engage with an authoritative voice, a particular group of people who have said, uh, I'm going to be a part of this community and I'm going to recognize you as a person that God has placed in my life to help unpack the scripture, to minister the sacraments, to, you know, um, to, to come after me if I make decisions where my life goes off the rails. When I think about the local church and the role of the local pastor, um, I think of that as a, I get protective of the idea but I don't want, as a pastor, I don't want anybody walking in who, who feels like a pastor to declare themselves pastor over people in my congregation. Yeah. You know, the, the, the gloves come off at that point, you know, because there's there's a protective um, sense of, of call and responsibility that I feel as a pastor to, to um, 
to not only disciple and care for, but but to protect as best as I can uh, people in my congregation from from uh, you know from wolves, you know, like a shepherd. Yeah. Um, when I think about Jesus, though, I think, well, okay, the truth is that he does have the authoritative voice and the right to speak authoritatively into the lives of every single living human being. In fact, to the to the point that there is going to come a time when everyone is going to bow and confess to the Lord. And so, yes, he is absolutely um, the pastor of, of the earth, you know, of, of human beings, of humankind. And um, But it's a, it's an interesting and intriguing way to think about him uh, in that. And I have, honestly, I haven't done that a lot because um, you do. You think of him more as a teacher. You think of him as a healer. You think of him as the Messiah, uh, as our substitutionary sacrifice, you know, the one who, who lived for us and died for us. But then when you look at his ministry, you see him performing uh, the, in very pastoral ways. Like he does come in with authority. In fact, he comes into the temple, and what does he do? He overturns tables, and he says, this is my father's house. I mean, he just asserts yeah. his authority there. He, he commands people uh, to do certain things, to stop doing other things. Um, you also see in him a pastoral uh, love and concern for the world, uh, that's very pastoral, that they are his flock, I mean, even when he's getting ready to be arrested and he's, he's looking at Jerusalem and he's saying, oh, I've longed to gather you yes. uh, like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't have me. But what he's saying is you wouldn't have me as your pastor. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have me. Um, and so I think that's, that's beautiful that, that you see that. Even with, with the, the uh, during his crucifixion, when they're casting lots for his clothes, and he, and he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Uh, he's, he's being pastoral over a people, and he's, he's interceding for them before the Father um, on a spiritual level, level for their well-being. And uh, so, I, yeah, I think, I think if we're going to look at Jesus as a pastor, we have to look at him as more than a model. Um, but we have to look at him as the person who had the most... Um, the most right and the most claim and the best method uh, to pastor the world. And then to take a few steps back and say, okay, but I'm not that. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot lot to learn there. Yeah. Well, Um, let's talk about that for a minute. What, what kind of pastor was Jesus? You mentioned authority um, mm -hmm. and even the sense of compassionate care, wanting to tend, um, you know, to the flock as it were. But what are some other qualities that, that we see in his, um, he was, pastoral manner. He, he was relational. Uh, everything was relational. You know, everything Jesus did, even even the fact that the primary way that at least it's recorded in Scripture that he taught was was with parables. Um, we do get a few sermons that that may represent you know the sermon content that he delivered many times. The people seem familiar with his teaching, but but you know, one of his primary teaching methods was with narrative and story, uh, which is fascinating to me uh, because it's, it's, it's drama. It um, raises questions and doesn't always answer them. Um, I think one of the things that's fascinating about Jesus as a pastor is that he was very willing to regard his people as works in progress. You know, that, <laughs> yeah. that I, think, I think we can look as pastors at our congregation and see them as almost like they're they're uh, an operating system that gets periodic upgrades that makes them better, you know. <laughs> yes. And and that 
and that by now you should be on, you know, 4.02 version, and you seem like you're still on 1.0 version, you know, and, and what's wrong with you? But I think about, you know, Jesus when he was, when he was, when James and John came to Jesus and said, in glory, we want to sit at your right and your left hand. Um, and Jesus said, you know, here's these two brothers being, being really arrogant, uh, and, and, and really assertive and, and presumptive. Um, and Jesus says, can you drink the same cup that I'm going to drink? And they say, sure. <laughs> and he says, well, actually, the truth is you will uh, drink the same cup. I think about Jesus saying that to these, to these two disciples and him seeing them and thinking and knowing you guys don't have any idea what's coming your way. Mm. Uh, but I do. And what's coming your way is going to be awful uh, in some respect. You know, it's going to be you're going to suffer. Uh, and. Um, and I, I love that he wasn't, you know, he didn't throw any barbs in. You're going to suffer, and you're going to fail at it. You're going to be bad at this. You know, I think of Peter, too, you know, where where uh, Jesus tells his closest friend and disciple, you're going to deny me. Uh, he knows that his, his you know, right-hand man in, in his earthly ministry has it in him to just walk away and pretend um, that he never even knew the man. And... Jesus doesn't dismiss his people for those reasons. And so I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that as, as, you know, the kind of pastor Jesus was, that he was very patient. Um, and he was always focused on the development of the person way more than the cultivation of their behavior. Yeah. Even, as he, even as he called them to, to be moral, even as he called them to, to, you know, to obey God's law, he didn't. Uh, that wasn't the standard. That wasn't the measuring stick by which he determined whether he'd love them or not. He was always trying to get to the heart. Yeah, I'm. I'm struck by even the ways that he approached matters of eternal substance and and depth with a simplicity. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, isn't it? And you know, this when we were talking about writing briefly about trying to be clever and what have you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, I think, comes from just the uh, you know, I mean, everybody pins everything on social media and, and what have you, but we we communicate differently today, obviously. Um, but you see a succinctness, at least in what's recorded from Jesus, and yet he's he's not, there's not this cleverness, there's not a show-offiness. Um, he, he ha- you know, obviously had a way of communicating deep, you know, deep things in as few words, <laughs> in as yeah. few words as possible. So it's short, but it's not, for lack of a better word, pithy or, um, yeah. you know, trite or, yeah, you or know, what have you. He would get to the heart through a wound. You know, he would, he would like I think of the woman at the well or the rich young two people where they came to Jesus basically wanting to hear that they were okay. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of times, People uh, who don't aren't familiar with scripture, you know, will make Jesus into what they think he should be. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times, you'll hear people talk about Jesus. Well, Jesus just wants me to be happy, and he wants me to have the things that, that I want to have. And you know, he's he's cool with whatever it is that I you know want to do. But when you look at Jesus talking with the woman at the well, it's a great example um, to to talk about matters of eternal significance. He pushes on on buttons where she has pain in her life. You know, he talks about her marriages and he talks about um, knowing this, this 
the story of hers. And the rich young ruler, when he, when he looks at him and, and says, you know, one thing you lack, um, sell everything you have and, and give it to the poor and then come follow me. He just raises the thing that the person says, yeah, that's the one that's holding me back. That's, that's the one. And I think as a, you know, if I'm looking at Jesus as a pastor, I think one of the things you see regularly is you see him being willing to step into the interior of the heart of a person and speak into who that person is and, uh, but without condemnation. Um, I think he even did this with the religious leaders. I think he was getting to the heart through a wound when he would call the religious leaders whitewashed tombs. I think he was, mm. I think he was doing the same thing for them then that he was doing for the woman caught in adultery when he said, you know, whoever's without sin cast for a stone. He's trying to, he's trying to speak to the thing that they define themselves by and say, this is not who you are. And so to the religious leaders who are so, I don't know any people who are, who are rule keepers to the hilt and love that about themselves. You know, yeah. <laughs> I know people who are rule keepers and they feel duty bound to do it, but I don't know that they derive joy from it. And so when Jesus looks at the religious leaders and says, you're, you're like whitewashed tombs, you're beautiful to look at on the outside. You put a lot of work into that, but inside you're just full of death. I think there were a fair amount of the religious leaders who would have heard that and taken some comfort from those words. And said, "I know <laughs> that's that's exactly <laughs> how you're describing how I feel." Mm. Yeah, we've been talking about um, Jesus as pastor. In, in a moment, I'd like to sort of turn the corner to see what may be applicable to pastoring, you know, like Jesus to the work of pastoral ministry. Um, immediately, I think of what you just said. Jesus got to the heart through people's wounds, and I think how dangerous that that idea could be, and often has been, in the hands of, um, you know, uh, center pastors, <laughs> not uh-huh. not Jesus the pastor, but those who are trying to pastor, uh, you know, under shepherds, under the good shepherd, and so I think one of the keys to not manipulating people. Um, or being or addressing people's wounds in hurtful ways is having a, a, a personal experience of brokenness, uh, of having undergone something profound oneself in um, in suffering. And so, I wonder if you could speak to that. First of all, um, maybe to some extent your your own personal experience um, yeah, sure. with suffering, but also why is personal suffering important to Christ like ministry? Yeah, I think, okay, so um, not, uh, not too long ago, I had a, uh, a sudden bacterial bloodborne infection um, that destroyed the mitral valve in my heart and brought me into uh, early stages of heart failure. I had to have open heart surgery. Um, and uh, basically, my life just came to a screeching halt and then made some changes, uh, made some turns. And... Um, Going through that process, one of the things that I had to do is I had to prepare to die. Uh, I had to um, get my house in order. I had to fill out, you know, w- you know, wills and and DNRs, and, and I had to write letters to my wife and children, and basically just be ready as much as I could be ready uh, in the event that, in my particular case, they were not able to to fix me, and uh, they were. 
uh, able to fix me. But in that process, you know, you when you come face to face with your mortality, <clears throat> in, in my case, uh, coming face to face with my mortality in a way that really weakened me physically. Uh, I just I became a shell of a person, um, and uh, in the in the process of doing that, I know it's it's kind of a stereotype and a trope, but you do at least I had. Uh, this just kind of a realization that life is short and um, and that uh, there, there are things to take seriously and there are things to, to just not uh, give as much weight to as I have in the past. I think um, when I went through that experience, one of the things that, that I came away with was an awareness of how nuanced and complicated life is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and suffering um, is is one of those things that that it's just it's complicated. And you, you know this whenever you talk to somebody who's been diagnosed with something and you're trying to figure out what to say because there are certain things you just can't say. You know, you can't say you'll be fine um, yeah. because maybe they won't be. Right. But you can't say, man, I hope you're fine. <laughs> you know, because then yeah. that sounds awful too. Um, uh, so, I, I, you know, for me, I think I think the importance. Of to answer the question of why is personal suffering important for Christ-like ministry, one is because everybody suffers, and so if you don't have a personal experience with suffering, um, you are you are going to miss something that's coming for or has already come for one hundred percent of your congregation. Everybody has suffered, is in the middle of suffering, or will be suffering soon. That's that's where that's where we live in this in this world. Um, and, you know, suffering happens to be the time when we learn most uh, of our major life lessons. It happens to be the time when we make a lot of our major life changes, when we, when we are, are shaped into the people we are. If you, if you think about your life and you think, well, where are the seasons where I did the most growing uh, or I did the most, you know, uh, you know maturing you're probably not going to be looking at the seasons where everything was coming along just fine and the car was paid for and the appliances were all working and the marriage was happy and, you know, the paychecks were coming. It, those are just not seasons typically when we're shaped. We're, we're shaped in the crucible. You know, we, we, we're shaped in the fire. And so um, I think it's important for not just relatability to other people who are suffering, but for ourselves personally Suffering moves you from uh, a place where maybe you spend time thinking in hypotheticals to thinking about uh, struggle and difficulty in real life situations. And I know that was the case for me, that that when I went through this, um, a lot of the theoretical ideas I had about suffering just kind of went away (laughs) um, and were replaced by, oh, no, this is actually what it's like. This is the this is the loneliness a person feels. This is the these are the questions a person has. Um, and kind of getting back to what we were we were talking about earlier, I think when you've suffered, you're you're much less likely to look at people as um, you know living lives with these spiritual operating systems that are just supposed to get upgraded from you know from time to time. You you have a you have a category for understanding this person used to be healthy and now they're a hot mess. And I I love them for it, you know, <laughs> and I, and I I, w- I want to be able to speak into this. Um, something's come along that's overturned the the apple cart, and now God is not who they thought they were, 
who they thought he was. And uh, what a great place for ministry uh, to, to be with somebody who's now has a new set of questions about God that they never even thought to ask because uh, they weren't suffering. So those are just some of my thoughts on yeah. that. What about you? Yeah, well, I, I tend to think of just the way it's hard to glory in oneself when mm-hmm. when you're suffering, when, you, when you've, you know, been laid low and, you know, you have to lean into the, the strength of, of Christ and that yeah. can't help but affect um, the way that we pastor and, and lead. You know, the pastor or the leader who is glorying in himself tends to see people as props for, you know, his own um, magnification or success or mm-hmm. people become, mm-hmm. um, pro, you know, become more like projects and, and what have you, whereas those who have been laid low um, who have to, you know, lean in, um, lean into Christ, I think, take themselves um, in the right way less seriously and, uh, yeah. you know, are, are, are happier in Christ and therefore better or healthier leaders. Um, and just as you alluded to, I think just the, the ability to empathize. So even if your particular suffering is not the same as someone else's particular suffering, the idea that you're able to listen and to hear a hurt um, and not have the impulse to manage it right away or um, say, yeah. you know, say things that, you know, um, don't, you know, that sound like, you know, Job's friends or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think, yeah, I, I think there's a lot there. Um, especially as, as suffering, you know, as we share in the sufferings of Christ become more Christ-like, I think there's something about that as well. Um, all right, let's yeah. take a let's take a coffee break and hear from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today. Okay, we're back. We're speaking with Russ Ramsey, pastor, author, literary raconteur, and we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about pastoring like Jesus. So I want to turn the corner. We've been talking about Jesus as pastor largely. Um, we began talking about how suffering is important to Christ-like ministry, um, but I want to talk about some other mm-hmm. aspects of of Christ's ministry and how we might apply those. I think of things, you know, there's certain things that Jesus says as I'm reading through the Gospels, and it, it strikes me like this is a really pastoral moment. This is Jesus clearly pastoring. Um, for instance, things like in John 16, where he's laying out these, you know, these final instructions and, and what have you, talking yeah. about um, you know, what's to come, and he's preparing his people. And he says something like, I have a lot more to say to you, but you cannot bear it now. That strikes me as a really pastoral thing to say. Um, and for a guy who only had who only had three years of earthly ministry 
you know, walking side by side with um, with his friends. He he just seems exceedingly patient, which you alluded to earlier. He has a patience that um, mm-hmm. belies the fact that he's got three years in you know incarnate on you know boots on the ground, but also somewhat tactical. So, what are some common ways pastors today um, fail to exercise a Christ-like patience with people? You mentioned sort of a failure to see people as works in progress, but are are there some other ways that we yeah. tend to be impatient with people? I think one of the ways we tend to be impatient with people as as pastors is we we ourselves can uh, rush to be understood by our people. Okay. So if somebody in my congregation um, is... Uh, you know, is frustrated with me for something I said or something they see me doing. I'm not being what they want me to be. My gut instinct is to want to sit down with them and uh, clarify uh, or explain or justify myself or defend myself. And I think one of the things, when, when that's the gut reaction with somebody in the congregation, one, I'm assuming from the outset that they're wrong and it's a mistake that I can correct just by explaining. Um, and I think that that's a kind of an impatience with people uh, that's pretty self-important, that there's everybody should like me. Uh, and if you don't, it's because you're making a mistake and I'm going to try to fix that mistake. <laughs> um, and so we're going to we're going to get together and we're going to talk it through so you can see the error of your thinking. <laughs> and uh, I think that's that's a way we can just be downright insulting to, to people's intelligence because sometimes the, re- the reality is you know we're not going to please everybody all the time, um, and we're probably not even going to come close to pleasing everybody all the time. And I think one of the ways that we fail to exercise Christ-like patience with people is we feel an urgency to um, correct people's displeasure with us uh, immediately. I think Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't have character flaws. He was, he was perfect, um, but he was often misunderstood. And you see him being willing to be misunderstood and not always explain himself. Even with, with I think of when Lazarus died and Mary and Martha you know, they were friends of Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Scripture treats them as, as Jesus' friends, which is kind of a cool thing to think about. Um, and, uh, that, you know, that their faces would light up and he would show up in the doorway, you know. And, and, uh, and when, when he, when, when they send the courier to tell him Lazarus has died, uh, and Jesus doesn't come right away. And then he gets there, and both Mary and Martha are distraught and they're upset. And they tell Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Um, and he tells them, I'm the resurrection and the life. When you, when you look at the exchange that they have, there's a part of me that thinks, Jesus, there's so much more you could have told them. Yeah. You know, there's so much more you could have said in that moment that would have um, – maybe brought a little bit more comfort, a little bit more clarity to, to Mary and Martha there where they're grieving. But the beauty of that exchange is, is you see Jesus is willing to be misunderstood by his friends because what he, what he would, what they need to know, they don't have categories to understand. You know, they don't, they don't know. And so he's willing to be misunderstood. And I think about that, um, as a pastor that any pastor, uh, 
knows that there is a handful of people in the congregation, uh, or has people has a handful of people in the congregation, and they wonder, do those people like me? <laughs> you know, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm unclear. I'm, I'm unclear as to, and, and probably the reason you're unclear is because they maybe they don't, right. um, you know, or at least or at least they don't they don't like you like like your super fans who are, who are who think every sermon that you gave was the best sermon they ever heard. Yeah. Um, and I think I think it's it's uh, it's Christ-like patience to say, okay, Lord, bring people into my mix that struggle with my delivery, that struggle with just who I am as a person, that we wouldn't have been friends in high school, um, and and make us make us part of a community together, and and, and let me learn and benefit and grow from the fact that they're here as opposed to not here. Um, I think that's 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 one of the ways I think that we. We fail to exercise Christ-like patience with people as we we just want everybody to be on board with us. Yeah. Um, and you know what a mess. Yeah. Uh, so good. What What are some dangers in trying to quote unquote pastor like Jesus? I mean, obviously none of us is Jesus. So <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what are yeah. What are some ways we can get that idea wrong? I guess. Well, I think one of the ways we can get that idea wrong is um, to assert our authority. As pastors, because the pastoral role is an authoritative role. It's, it's a role where you're, you're proclaiming the word of God to people and calling them to respond. Um, the way that works in, in these days is the local, is through the local church, right? And so, so the, the social contract is somebody joins my church and declares me their pastor, and so I have this voice to speak in their life. Um, I think one of the dangers is where is where pastors begin to pronounce and declare um, authoritative commands and judgments over people that, that have not asked them to be their pastor. Mm. Uh, I think that we have to respect that. Uh, I think that we, we do that, um, you know, you see this happen with, with uh Ministry leaders who have television ministries, or or just are on TV in the news and things like that, saying things um, as though the world is their congregation, and they have they have a right to to say hard things to people that they don't understand and don't know and don't walk with. Um, I think I think that's a place where we can abuse that is to think because by right of me being a pastor, I have a, I have the, the permission to uh, to challenge. Uh, anybody and everybody, anytime I want, uh, with impunity. <laughs> um, I think that I think I'm, I'm misunderstanding my own my own the scope of my own role when I do that. That yeah. that, that needs to be something that I'm, that I'm called to do, and people are saying I want you to do that for me. Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways um, we misunderstand or at least misapply um, in in terms of. Um, you know, trying to pastor like Jesus. I think even unintentionally, I just know so many pastors who, out of good motivations, um, try to be twenty four seven available to people, and mm-hmm. you know, end up inadvertently feeding, you know, people's idolatry to some extent of the pastor as functional Messiah. Um, yeah. So, I, I, and I'm sure there are people listening, pastors listening, who can fall into that trap, and it, it comes from a sincere place to love people and care for people well, um, but can feed even their own idolatry, right? So 
to be mm-hmm. a pastor like Jesus does not mean trying to be Jesus <laughs> for people. Yeah. Um, o- only <laughs> Jesus can be Jesus uh, for people. Yeah. So, and, and one way you help people, um, it's, it's somewhat counterintuitive, but one way you help people love Jesus more, lean on Jesus more is by a strategic unavailability, um, not a withholding of affection or a distancing or stiff arming or what have you. Um, but re- you know, refusing, um, to give up Sabbath and rest mm-hmm. and, and those sorts of things. Um, okay, I want to yeah, shift gears I, just for a moment. Tell us about um, your new, um, I assume it's a trilogy. I guess you would call it a trilogy, yeah. the Retelling the Story series. Tell us about that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so uh, the, the series is called Retelling the Story. It just released with InterVarsity Press uh, in July, uh, and... It is a narrative retelling of the story of Scripture from Eden to Rome. Oh, wow. Uh, the, first, the first two books are actually new editions of my first two. Uh, so there's the Advent of the Lamb of God that, that used to be called Behold the Lamb of God, a narrative. Um, uh, well, <laughs> I forgot, a biblical narrative. Um, so it, it's... it's, uh, it's uh, so that one's an Advent book, and basically what it does is it tells the narrative arc of Scripture from Eden up through all through the Old Testament through the Nativity story, and it ends with the birth of Jesus. It's written in 25 chapters, so you can read one every day in December if you want to use it as, as kind of a, a Advent reading. Um, and then the second book is called The Passion of the King of Glory, which uh, was under a different title, Behold the King of Glory. Um, and the Passion of the King of Glory picks up where the Advent book left off, and it's the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, a synthesis, basically, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the last book is called The Mission of the Body of Christ, and it picks up with the resurrection and ascension, and then follows the rest of the narrative arc of the New Testament from the book of Acts and the other little narrative details that we get in some of the epistles. And so I wrote it in a storyteller's voice, uh, and the reason I did it is because, as a pastor, one of the things that I see is that um, our congregations are increasingly uh, more and more biblically illiterate. And I don't mean that as an insult as much as a statement of fact, that, that there's just a great number of people who either claim the name of Christ or are interested in Christianity but have never read the Bible. They just don't. They haven't read it. They haven't spent time in the pages of Scripture. And so they... So, the, so the, 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 the book that their faith is based on uh, is a book they haven't read and don't know. Mm-hmm. And so, so much of the Bible is written in the form of a story. It's written in narrative, and it's interspersed with, you know, um, songs and psalms and prophecies and, you know, uh, the, the genealogies and things like that. And what I tried to do was lift from Scripture the basic storyline and tell it in the storyteller's voice, kind of akin to uh, in Deuteronomy where the Lord tells his people, I want you to tell your children the stories about them. I want you to tell them when you're walking on the road, when you're laying down at night, when you're sitting down to eat. Keep these stories always on your lips. And so I have this image in my head of the fathers and grandfathers and uncles and, you know, mothers and grandmothers and aunts um, sitting around these fires telling children stories, kind of starting with, do, do, do you remember the story about, or did you hear the one about? 
and then they would tell these stories. And so much of scripture was was preserved and passed down early on through an oral tradition, you know, through storytelling before everybody had scrolls and, and books, you know. And um, and so what I tried to do was in that voice, what's I think distinct about my books from maybe some other biblical narratives that are out there is one of my rules was I'm going to chain myself to the text. I'm not going to make stuff up. Uh, I'm not going to make up, you know, people. I'm not going to invent um, situations. I'm going to, I'm going to, really just draw from the pages of scripture, mine the details that are there, and I infer and I speculate some, but I tried to make my speculation uh, within the bounds of reason and the human experience, you know, so it's something I felt like, well, I can infer that this was probably the case because that's just how people are, you know, like when Joseph is there and Mary's giving birth, you know, I, I ascribe to Joseph that he's nervous and that he's trying to figure out what to do. Mm. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, Part of that is because I'm a dad, I have four kids, and I've been in the room when, when they've all been born, and I and I know what the human experience is like as a father when a child is being born. Um, so I tried to be reasonable there, you know, with, with those things. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a biblical literacy tool that would help people understand the story of the Bible from Eden all the way through Rome. Uh, and part of the reason I did that in the storyteller's voice is I just believe in the power of story. It was the primary teaching method that Jesus used. I think you can, you can hide truth in the heart by way of the imagination. That's why we go to movies and read novels and, and are so drawn to stories because we're, we're compelled by the events that are happening, but we're also learning from them and we're also understanding the world as a result of it. And so, um, so that's what it is. It's, it's, it's a biblical narrative for the purpose of, of uh, telling the story of the Bible. I hope that it'll be a, a pretty great biblical literacy tool for a lot of people that they'll read these and say, oh, that's the story of yeah. the Bible. You know, um, so that's what that's what they are. They, they the three volumes, InterVarsity uh, it released all three on the same day, which has been a lot of fun um, <laughs> to see that happen. And uh and uh, yeah, so they're they're fresh off the press right now, and it's fun having them out in the world. That's excellent, Russ. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. This was fun. I'm glad we got to do it. Yeah, we've been speaking with Russ Ramsey, one of the pastors at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, author of numerous books, including the brand new trilogy of biblical narratives, collectively titled "Retelling the Story," which he just shared about. Three books called "The Advent of the Lamb of God." The Passion of the King of Glory, and The Mission of the Body of Christ. You can look those up on Amazon or Lifeway or wherever Christian books are sold. Uh, Thanks for listening. As always, if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. Review us on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast. Hosted by Jared Wilson, Managing Editor of For the Church. Found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.